0: You're listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. I'm your host, Suzanne Kyoto. Each week I'll be discussing all aspects of class actions with the leading experts in this area. The results are just like a class action. Thought-provoking, lively, and always slightly unpredictable. Happy listening. Hi everyone, welcome to Certified, Canada's Class Actions Podcast. In this episode, we have Mike Robb with us to discuss representation. Uh, Mike is a partner at Siskins in London, Ontario. And Mike, could you perhaps tell us a bit about your background and about your practice?
1: Sure. Uh, thanks for having me, Suzanne. You're I'm, welcome. I'm at Siskins. I've been here for uh, 16-ish years after spending a couple of years at one of the big firms in Toronto. Uh, for the last... Probably 12 or 14 of those years, I've done primarily securities class actions. Um, uh, so I act mostly for investors, uh, largely in publicly traded companies. Uh, I've also done uh, environmental cases. I've done some products cases, um, uh, but that the focus of my focus of my practice has really mostly been securities uh, for at least the last 10 years.
0: Okay, great. So let's launch into the uh, actual questions. We're talking here about representation, so uh, adequacy, adequacy of counsel, conflicts in the class, things like that. That's what we're discussing today. So how often do you think courts assess the adequacy of counsel at the certification stage, whether implicitly or explicitly? I know explicitly is pretty rare. What's your view on that?
1: Well, I think I think it does form part of the... And the evaluation of the adequacy of a representative plaintiff. So I think to some degree, it occurs in every case. With that said, I don't think adequacy is a particularly high standard. and and I think you know, for the most part if if counsel can articulate uh, the theory of the case and can assemble a record that uh, that uh, you know approaches the standard for a certification record, for example, then, uh, you know, generally, that will be you know sufficient from a court's perspective to um, to, to give counsel a pass, so to speak, in, in terms of adequacy. I mean, I, I do think you know there are there are other times where um, adequacy and superiority uh, get confused a little bit. For mm-hmm. example, at, at, at carriage, sometimes you see. Um, Courts saying, you know, both both sets of counsel are adequate or competent or whatever way they might articulate it, and and in that uh, context, it's not clear to me that simple adequacy is is the right test or the right question because in that case you're you're evaluating, you know, comparatively sort of two sets of counsel. But but I do, you know, I think it's something that courts pay attention to implicitly. It's it's rarely or almost never explicit but it is i do think it's in the back of a court's mind when they're uh, evaluating a case at certification in particular
0: Mm -hmm. and on that same subject well the adequacy of the actual representative plaintiff i mean do you do you think it's do you think it's um a disadvantage if a representative plaintiff has been the rep plaintiff in more than one action so he or she is a kind of repeat player
1: I, I don't think so. It depends on the nature of the case and, and the person, of course, but mm-hmm. for the most part, I do think that that experience uh, and understanding of the process uh, and uh, understanding of the issues that a court has to face, those are all things that will work to the benefit of the class if, if a plaintiff is able to uh, express some understanding and provide instructions you know, in a way that reflects those Reflects an additional understanding of those issues. I think that I think that's advantageous. I, I don't think it's a problem.
0: Mm-hmm. And I know I'm kind of going off script here. These these aren't the questions that I that I sent you, but just because of your securities background, is there more of an advantage in being an institutional rep plaintiff in the securities context? So, like a pension fund or something like that.
1: Uh, there there can be. I mean, mm-hmm. it, you know, the, it, one of the questions you did, you know, w- w- we did sort of discuss was was you know how how advantageous is it to have a, a client who's engaged in the merits of the case, and mm-hmm. I think having a client who is uh, particularly knowledgeable about the subject matter of your case is is you know can be quite quite valuable because of course we're used to assembling a record and assembling a case out of. Um, you know, public information and information that we can gather from other sources. And when you have a client who has insight into the subject matter of your case, that mm-hmm. that is that is really can be really valuable to you. And so, when you have an institutional investor who you know understands, for example, the market forces that might have been impacting um, the you know the, the trading in a particular company or or the market at a particular time, that that can uh, be you know really helpful. Um, that that you know uh, it's also helpful from the perspective of of you know the class in terms of um, exercising you know being able to exercise more control over class counsel being a, you know a, a more sophisticated client who understands the merits of the case better is better positioned for example to challenge uh, counsel on, on you know judgments that are that are going to be made and and is you know more able to give effective instructions
0: mm-hmm. okay great so uh on to more the um the adequacy of counsel which i know as we said is not an explicit consideration uh, at certification but it is an implicit one sometimes do you think with the rise of new firms getting more into the class actions field that that uh that there, there might be difficulties with that, you know, inexperienced counsel litigating complex actions.
1: Well, I think that's, I think that's possible. I mean, I, I don't really think I've seen that. Mm-hmm. You know, there are some new, there are some new players in the field, um, but I, I wouldn't really call them inexperienced. Mm-hmm. You know, many of them are people who have, you know, spent their early careers at established class action shops and then decided to go on their own or they're people who have spent their careers litigating you know uh, individual cases and decided to venture into the class actions world so they're not inexperienced people per se Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, and uh, you know but the other there's discipline that's imposed in this particular practice area by the you know by the fact that if uh, you're not able to um, you know bring the case home so to speak you're not going to last very long from a business perspective because the downside is is very significant. The risks are very significant, and and you know, um, you know, it's the practice area is going to test you. It's gonna, it's gonna uh, make you jump through hoops before it rewards you.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and then moving on to the changes uh, in Bill One Hundred and Sixty-One which are coming to a, well by the time this show airs it, they will have come into effect uh, from October 1st so they've tried to or those changes have tried to address the problem of the absent client by uh, by for example requiring full and frank disclosure by all counsel and settle, settlement approval motions so that that's trying to address the the problem of you know the the representative plaintiff isn't always present or when he or she is present there's still the the class that are that are absent so there's, there's this kind of adversarial void on settlement approval motions mm-hmm. do you think do you think the changes in bill 161 will address that effectively
1: well I, I mean I think the, the the question really is accountability mm. um, that that's directed towards and and I, I, I'm not sure that the full and frank disclosure obligation for example is actually a substantive change in the law I mean mm-hmm. I, I think responsible counsel um, In in you know on settlement approval, we're always trying to give the court uh, everything that they could and everything that was necessary in order to explain the compromise contained in a settlement. If in fact there is a compromise, and usually there is, Um, you know the the, there's you know there's accountability in that, and and um, because every time you go stand before the court uh, to seek the approval of a settlement, what you're doing is saying, um, you know, you're, you're effectively staking your reputation and your judgment and you have to, you know, you have to provide a basis for that. And, and, you know, the, the potential sort of reputational consequences of not being able to do that are significant, um, especially in a practice area where, you know, we tend to see the same few judges over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, if 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 you can't uh, explain the basis for the settlement, the basis for the compromise that you're proposing, um, you know, th- that's going to be a problem for you. Um, you know, the judges, especially in the last five to seven years, I would say, have become ha- have become many of them particularly scrupulous on this issue and have pressed counsel for. Um, more detailed information about about the basis for settlement. Um, you'll see, you know, references in decisions to not just wanting boilerplate uh, mm-hmm. and so forth. I mean, I think that that's real, and and counsel feels that um, Counsel feels that when they stand up uh, in, in court to, uh, to to seek the approval of a settlement and to you know to to persuade a judge that it's a fair and reasonable compromise. So. Um, do do I think the changes in the in the um, in the, the Act will affect that? I'm not sure they will. I think there are practices that are evolving that that will help. Uh, for example, um, you know I, I've had a few cases now uh, where we have posted um, not just the notice but the settlement approval materials. Uh, the affidavits uh, and everything mm-hmm. uh, online well in advance of a settlement approval hearing so that class members uh, if they're so inclined can go in and look at those and, and really understand the basis for the compromise being proposed in advance of the hearing mm-hmm. um, i think that uh, I- institutions like the class actions clinic uh, down at the university of windsor are going to are going to help with that as well because they're going to uh, you know, assist class members in understanding what their rights are, and assist uh, potentially assist class members in articulating questions and and objections if they arise to you know in the settlement context. So, I think those are, those are, I mean, those are all important uh, aspects of of the accountability question that that is sort of raised by the absent client, and I think they'll all they'll all you know that continues to evolve and and but but i do think that you know uh responsible counsel does want to be accountable and and show um you know be able to demonstrate the basis for for the judgment that's made in in putting settlement settlement forward in any of these cases
0: mm-hmm. um i mean i think the 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 basis for the settlement, there's usually some basis for the settlement, right? And the plaintiff uh, the plaintiff and defence counsel are in agreement with that. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a settlement to approve. But it's more uh, the adversarial side, the adversarial void that Jasminka Giz, Kalaji has, has pointed out, that there's no one arguing against the settlement. And that's sort of, in our adversarial system, that's a problem, right? So do you think the mechanisms for objection and things like that are... And and the mechanism for objectors to appear on a settlement approval hearing. Do you think that represents the the interests of the class in this sort of adversarial context?
1: Um, well, it, it's intended to it's intended to do that. It's mm-hmm. it's um, you know more and less frequently uh, exercised depending on the case and the, the practice area and so forth. Um, you know, I do think that. That courts and counsel are, are you know, willing to hear from those who object, and and I do think that that you know that additional notice provisions, like the kind I described a moment ago, uh, facilitate that. Um, um, are are people uh, as engaged in in that process as uh, you might like them to be? Um, possibly not, but. But there are, um, you know, there are cases where that's where there's a more active sort of set of objectors than uh, and, and, you know, those people generally get heard. And and so you're always, you know, when you're negotiating, you're always thinking about uh, what someone, uh, you know, what a class member uh, might show up and say and how you will explain to the court or to that class member. Uh, the judgment you've made, and and so that that uh, the the possibility of that um, accountability, the you know that ultimate accountability is is uh, you know very important, I think, in in responsible counsel's mind in terms of um, making those judgments.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, and and on the subject of settlement, we sort of back ended this interview because we've gone straight to the sort of the end stage of a class action or at least when when they settle but on the subject of settlement do you think there's much consistency in the jurisprudence on rep plaintiff honoraria so you know that's that's something that's usually consistently asked for at a settlement approval motion and uh, in bc they seem rep plaintiffs seem to get uh, honorary, even in unexceptional circumstances, whereas we've had recent decisions from Quebec where they get nothing. So, okay. what do you think Ontario's approach should be?
1: Uh, well, I, I think you're right. There isn't a lot of consistency, particularly across the country. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, what do I think? I mean, frankly, I think that the rep plaintiff, in any case, does does take on a burden that is not assumed by by Individual class members, mm-hmm. and you can have sort of, a, you know, you can have a philosophical debate about whether they should do it. Uh, you know, for the for the greater good, most do most. You know, because if a if a rep plaintiff asks you at the outset of a case, well, you know, what do I get for being the rep plaintiff? I mean, your answer has to be, well, you get. Whatever your entitlement would be if you were a class member, Uh, plus you get to do some extra work. Um, You know, uh, you can't, you certainly can't. Yeah, you can't promise, you know, you can't promise anyone anything. What, What you can say is, in some cases, the court will award a representative plaintiff an honorarium for the additional time and effort. Uh, spent in advancing the action on behalf of the class, mm-hmm. but that but there's no guarantee um, that uh, a court will um, award one in this case, or that it'll be you know appropriate to seek one. So um, you know for for the most part, uh, people people do take that obligation on um, with you know well. Certainly, if they're properly advised, they take it on without any promise of anything, uh, you know, for themselves beyond what they might recover in the case, uh, and that that is, you know, should there be something more? I mean, would would it promote access to justice for people to understand that uh, they'll be rewarded for the time and energy yeah. they they spend on a case? I think you could argue that both ways. I mm-hmm. think it's an open question, um, but. But I don't see, personally, I don't see a problem with it. Others might.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. And still on the subject of, of settlement. So, I mean, usually there's there's an opt-out period for the class, right, after certification. And often a, a settlement is concluded after that opt-out period has expired. So we have this settlement. Uh, oftentimes it's a lump sum settlement where there's just one uh, one sum available to the class. But it's too late to opt out, so you have to basically divide this limited fund amongst the class members who have not opted out. Do you think that raises conflicts, and if so, how do you deal with them?
1: Um, well, it really does depend on the case. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in many cases, um, you know, the 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 case theory uh, provides a basis for. Uh, dividing a fixed fund. So for example, uh, uh, you know, securities class action, uh, particularly a secondary market securities class action, the the um, statute provides a, f- uh, a presumptive formula for the allocation of damages. And so uh, you can take class members um, transaction data, apply the formula, uh, and um, and uh, it will um, affect, you know, and then you, so you end up with a total n- amount of claims and you, you can divide a fund pro rata in accordance with that formula. And, and that, that, you know, avoids uh, a conflict because it aligns with the theory expressed in the, in the case and in the law. It's an objective uh, means of, of uh, allocating a fund and often you know there may be nuances in the case but but um, if you can do it sort of objectively in line with uh, with a formula like that I think it it resolves a lot of those issues there are some cases where um, it becomes more more complicated where for example um, you know some you know there are different types of claims asserted and there are uh, you know some claims are, are stronger than others, and it has become, you know, we have had situations where we've um, negotiated a pot and then uh, appointed representatives for, for sort of different constituencies within the class uh, and and conducted effectively a mediation among class members in order to uh, resolve allocation mm-hmm. issues. Um, you know, and that 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 is sort of a relatively rare and extreme case but it is you know there are ways to make sure that you land on a fair you know a fair uh outcome
0: okay what are the most serious intra-class conflicts that you've come across and and how have you dealt with them
1: well that 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 last one was was you know uh, one of the most serious and Mm -hmm. and you know appointing sort of i mean there are cases where you have a consortium of counsel acting for, acting for um, a whole class, and and you can, uh, you know, go ahead and and sort of as- make assignments to to different people to negotiate on behalf of different constituencies. You can send people for uh, independent uh, independent advice uh, mm-hmm. if necessary to make sure that. Um, you know they have, uh, an, you know, they the class members or, or rep plaintiffs have an independent view of an allocation. I mean, I, I do think sort of often allocation, particularly in a securities cases, where is where those most serious intra class conflicts might arise, mm-hmm. uh, and and those are all things that we have done or considered over time um, in, in order to. Uh, satisfy ourselves and the client and the court that that what we have is a is a fair a fair and reasonable outcome
0: Mm -hmm. i mean do you think it would address that problem by allowing people to opt out by giving them a second chance at an opt-out when the settlement is concluded so if they're not happy with their portion they can just go and they just can go on their own and and not be part of the class and not part of the settlement do you think that's a solution
1: well i i I mean I guess it, it could be, but it presents a, a number of other a number of other um, complexities. For mm-hmm. example, you you often don't know what your individual entitlement is until uh, the whole thing is is done and concluded. So, you know, if you have a pro rata, uh, if you have a fund that's being allocated pro rata, you won't actually know anyone's individual entitlement until you um, know how many people. F- File claims and the value of those claims, mm, for example. That's a good point. Uh, and and a defendant uh, is unlikely to be willing uh, to pay, uh, you know, a settlement without, uh, you know, without and, and to, sorry, to pay and and sort of commit irreversibly mm-hmm. without some certainty about who's going to be in and who's going to be out. So often there's an opt-out threshold built into a settlement agreement where. You know, if if uh, uh, a a number in excess of X uh, shares opts out of the of the settlement, then the defendant has the right to terminate. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, And and so um, one of the one of the advantages of a post-certification settlement is that um, you have certainty about who's in and who's out. Mm -hmm. Um, So you know that that second opportunity to opt out. Um, you know, may address one problem; it may lead to some other challenges. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you think there's a conflict at the settlement stage or the settlement negotiation stage when class council is trying to negotiate the, set- the settlement and their fee at the same time? And and how would you? How do you deal with that conflict?
1: Well, if do you think, think it's a conflict, I, I do think it's a conflict. And mm-hmm. the way I would address it is not to do it um, when. when when you know the I mean in my cases it's exceedingly rare that that defendant actually pays pays the fees but mm-hmm. but I've been in situations where you're in the midst of negotiating a settlement for your client in the class and and you know the defendant will will raise fees and and I my own view and I think the view of the people I've worked most closely closely with is that you, what you have to say is we're not talking about that now. I mean, I guess if, if there's a structure, there may be a structural point you can talk about, which is that you know if if the proposal is that the defendant will pay the fees on top of the settlement amount, um, that that's a that's a factor you can um, that's a structural point you can deal with. But in terms of the quantum of the fees. Um, you, you, that, that, in my view, should not be, you know, uh, uh, should not be negotiated until everything else is done and final, uh, mm-hmm. if at all. Really, I think it should be a separate agreement, separate negotiation that follows the conclusion of the, of the settlement uh, itself. So, you know, you can have a settlement agreement that provides benefits A, B, and C to class members and. Uh, benefit D provided to class members is that the defendant will pay the reasonable fees of of um, class counsel, uh, then the settlement agreement is signed. You can then negotiate the fees or litigate them before the court.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, when negotiating the fee agreement to start with, how much power does the rep plaintiff really have? I mean, I think there's obviously an imbalance there, but what, what could be done to address it?
1: Well, um, you know, in most cases, uh, in most cases, um, you know, an individual uh, representative, proposed representative plaintiff, properly advised, will understand that their fee agreement is only a cap mm-hmm. on on the fees that will be paid by the class at the end of the day. Um, and, and, you know, the, the, you know, the real check on fees is at the court approval stage. Mm. Um, you know, in, 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 you know, courts, courts certainly are willing to um, reduce, reduce fees from, you know, the amount uh, provided for in a retainer agreement where, they see them as excessive, uh, or they see them as a windfall, um, and so you know th- that's that's the that's the ultimate check, and the fact that generally, you know, notice is given of the amount of fees being being required. I mean, people will show up, and um, as I say, people do show up and object to things from time to time, and the amount of fees being paid is one of the things that people will will show up and object to, mm-hmm. and 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 courts will. Um, you know, courts will, um, you know, reduce your, your fee award, uh, if they, you know, if they view it as unreasonable and it's, it's not entirely predictable as to when that's going to happen. So, um, you know, rep plaintiffs, I mean, some rep plaintiffs certainly do have leverage. For example, you mentioned the institutional investor, um, type, Mm uh, representative plaintiff in the securities class action. Some of those plaintiffs, uh, do negotiate um, fees uh, at the outset, um, and you know that that's an advantage in the sense that you can say to the court, "Well, we had a sophisticated counterparty to this agreement who has imposed discipline on the fees that we have, uh, that we're able to seek." Mm-hmm. Um, um, but but for the most part, you know, uh, the the fee amount. Uh, drafted into a contingency fee agreement in the class actions context is a cap that's explained to representative plaintiffs, and they understand that at the time that a fee is sought, uh, their, their their input will be sought and provided to the court on that as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, what do you think counsel's duties are with regard to advising the rep plaintiff about potential costs. Obviously, they're they're under a a duty to advise a rep plaintiff of a potential adverse costs award. But how about uh, any advising of any possible indemnities against that award or uh, application to the class proceedings fund or third party litigation funding that those avenues? Is there a duty to advise of all of those different avenues so that the rep plaintiff really knows what they're doing when shouldering the the burden of a potential adverse costs award?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, I, I frankly think it's the highly exceptional case uh, where a properly advised representative plaintiff would accept that risk mm. at all, at any stage. Um, um, you know, generally, the, the potential downside, the potential adverse costs uh, in a class action far exceed the potential upside for any individual in those cases. And mm-hmm. so, um, it, it, you know, it's hard to understand how a rational, uh, a rational representative plaintiff would, would take that obligation on his or him or herself. Uh, so uh, I do think it, it behooves class counsel to very carefully um, to, to take steps to provide protection to a re- representative plaintiff, um, as I say, it's not inconceivable that uh, they might properly advise, accept that risk. But I think, you know, that would be really exceptional. And frankly, if that was a a case that I was engaged in, I would probably want to send them for um, independent advice.
0: Right. Yeah. And I think there's even been cases where where, uh, courts have said, you know, I would Question the judgment of any representative plaintiff that would willingly shoulder that burden. Uh, well, you know, exactly. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: So, in terms of the relationship between class counsel and rep plaintiffs and class members, so let's just look at class counsel and class members. Have courts been clear on the relationship between uh, class counsel and class members, both before and after certification? Uh, and if they haven't, what problems has this raised?
1: Well. Uh... I don't think, I don't think, the problems that 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 there are, such as they are, are really uh, problems arising from a lack of clarity about about those relationships. I mean, mm-hmm. I think most most counts, class council who are, you know, who are experienced in the area understand generally the nature of their relationships. I, I do think, you know, there are some problems that arise in terms of. Communication and class member expectations and things like that that arise Mm -hmm. from uh, the fact that, you know, relatively unsophisticated class members who kind of see you as their lawyer, even though, you know, you're not technically their lawyer Mm -hmm. prior to certification, you know, they expect you to report to them like you're their lawyer or share privileged information with them like you're their lawyer. Uh, and things like that. And that, that can be frustrating for people. They want to know, you know, some people are, are really attentive to these cases, even though they're not the rep plaintiff and they want to know, you know, about, about your strategy or about your discussions with the opposing counsel or, or things like that, that, you know, you can't comfortably tell them because they're confidential or because they're privileged. And, and that, 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 person is you know not technically speaking a client and and not technically speaking a party to the you know discussion that you're having or a negotiation that you're having or or whatever the case may be so that that you know sort of unique the unique nature of that relationship with Mm -hmm. a with a class member um, you know it, it leads to some it takes some work to explain that to people sometimes usually once you do uh, you can you can find ways to satisfy uh, people with you know b- with a combination of of uh, process and you know the understanding of their relationship. But but it, it you know it can prove can prove challenging. And uh, but that's one of the you know well, that's one of the um, you know the pieces of the of, of this practice area that we mm-hmm. take on. We we do take on obligations to. A number of people, and and you know, take take very seriously our obligation to to advance and and not um, prejudice the interests of, of people, uh, you know, uh, without you know providing them the chance to to protect themselves at least.
0: Mm-hmm. So, following on from that, I mean, one of the one of the big challenges, I guess, is when either before or certification you have to narrow the class so you've had some kind of discussion with the defendant and they said well we think this chunk of people don't really have a claim or we're willing to consent to certification if it's just for this uh class of claims or whatever so you have to cut out a chunk of the class members right and that that can be really awkward right so how do you how do you communicate with those class members how do you manage their expectations how does that work
1: well um um, often in a scenario like that, you'd be you'd be required to provide notice to those people. Mm-hmm. You know their their limitation period would have been told by the filing of your claim, and and now if you're if you're amending your claim to exclude them, um, you know they're no longer in their limitation period. may be, may no longer be told. Uh, uh, you know it, it's it's responsible both on on. Council's part and, and the court's part to provide notice to those people so that they can take steps to protect themselves. If they, if they, uh, continue to be of the view that they have a claim that ought to be asserted. Um, the, the, um, you know, generally, um, class, class counsel is motivated to pursue claims that are meritorious and, and, um, and not to give those away for nothing. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's that's a big part of the, you know, we have an entrepreneurial model for class actions here, and, and that's, you know, for better or for worse, one of the benefits of it is that if, if there's merit to a claim, council is, is motivated to pursue it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, there is, some, there is some sort of protection built into the structure of the system that way. Um, but but you know notice and explaining to people and if necessary referral to other counsel is you know those are all things that that you would contemplate in that in that scenario if if in fact you thought there was something there that someone ought to protect or, or uh, ought to be considering pursuing.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean the the scenario can change right between when you commence a class action and when it actually comes to defining the class that certification for example if you don't have all the information about what the defendants have done you can turn out that they've perhaps paid off a whole chunk of the class's claims and that there's really no damages for them to claim for or the case law changes so that there's no claim for one chunk of the class so it can change can't it between when you start a class action and when it gets to certification
1: uh, absolutely and it frequently does you mm-hmm. you often learn a lot as the case as the case moves
0: along mm-hmm OK, and then there's also a conflict, isn't there, between the... I mean, there's, there's sort of a, a constantly moving pieces between the council, the rep plaintiff, and the class members, where you're always having to manage the interests of all three. What happens when there's a risk that the interests of the class will be subordinated to the interests of the rep plaintiff? Or, well, let's just stick with the rep plaintiff for now. How have you dealt with that risk when it's arisen? And I... I, I I presume you've taken a look at that recent case that I sent you from BC where the Mm -hmm. the rep plaintiff was proposing a seapray distribution that was improper and in conflict with the interests of the class and the court basically substituted the rep plaintiff for the purposes of settlement so that the seapray distribution could proceed properly. Uh, What are your thoughts on that subject on that decision? Uh, Tell us more about that.
1: Sure well uh, you know it, it it When I started out as a lawyer, one of the things that I was taught is that, you know, client management is really about expectations mm-hmm. management, and so I think you know one of the ways you you deal with that problem from the outset is is by building into that client relationship that you have with the representative plaintiff the idea that that they are retaining you uh, to pursue the case in the best interests of the class, and you're you're building that. That concept right into the uh, right into the um, the solicitor-client relationship that you have, and mm-hmm. effectively into the contract that you have. And so, um, you know, if you if you continue to work on that understanding as you as you proceed with a with a rep plaintiff, um, you know, when uh, an idiosyncratic. Uh, issue like the one described in that, in that Google case that you sent me arises, you, you know, you, you're able to say to that person, you know, um, you, you've retained us to, you know, to advance this claim on behalf of the class. You've now got this, this issue that is unique to you, uh, that is holding up a benefit, uh, for the whole class. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, our, our advice to you as the representative of the class, as the person who's undertaken to act uh, in the best interests of the class is uh, that, that, that's not consistent with the obligations you've undertaken. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and you, I think when you start to have those kinds of conversations with people, most people um, will, will understand, uh, will understand that, Um there, there are times, uh, you know, like in that, in that decision, that, that it won't, you know, it won't matter to people, uh, and you'll have to um, take further steps if, if you know, you can't reach an agreement. Again, I've had c- scenarios where um, you might have to send someone for independent advice, mm-hmm. um, so that because you know, sometimes they perceive you as unduly invested in, right, in the. The, the settlement, for example, mm-hmm. and so um, you know you, you can send people, you can provide people with your adv- advice and writing, and send them out to to someone else who is reputable and independent, and and you know have them you know provide their own view on what you're proposing. Um, but but in the you know if if you can't come to to ground on it, I mean I do think the the substitution. Uh, is sort of a, a last resort. It's an unfortunate thing for for someone who's uh, invested their time and energy into into being a rep plaintiff, mm-hmm. but it, it, it does happen from time to time. Unfortunately.
0: Okay, uh, and has uh, I guess I'm getting towards the final questions now. But has has the job of interacting with a rep plaintiff and interacting with a class. Become harder with COVID. I mean, you can't you can't see the rep plaintiff face to face anymore. Is that a big deal? Considering that sometimes they don't have as much interaction with the case as a individual plaintiff would.
1: Um, I don't think it's a I don't think it's a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we we do video conferences, we do um, Zoom or Teams or or whatever the case may be, in order to make sure that we have. You know that contact and that rapport with people um, obviously it's better to be able to sit together with someone to build a relationship you know it's says it's a lawyer-client relationship like any other and so you do want to have that that sort of trust and rapport with your client mm-hmm. uh, which is which is harder to obtain in this day and age but but you know we're we're <laughs> we're innovating and we're learning just like everybody else is right. we're you know we're 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 making the best of it and and you know clients are very understanding and appreciative of course of the efforts that that we're all making to you know keep them safe and their family safe and our family safe and all that Mm -hmm. i mean it certainly um um you know has made the flip side of it is is the inconvenience that that you know arises from a cross-examination or a or a meeting with your counsel is is reduced, you know, to the extent you don't have to show up at a court reporters anymore, or you don't have to travel to a meeting or have somebody in, in your house, for example.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, is that easier for lawyers based in London? Because I'd imagine you have to do a lot of London to Toronto travel previously. I, I guess that's ended now.
1: It, it has for the time being. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, 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 you know, in the first quarter of the year had been... To Toronto, I don't know how many times, and I'd been to, you know, to Montreal and New York and Vancouver, and um, and all of a sudden, you know, I haven't left home for six months. So yeah, <laughs> no, it's a, it's a, it's a big change. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's a big change, but uh, you know, it, uh, I think the cabin fever is now passed. I'm pretty I'm pretty comfortable actually being here all the time. But it you know it was a big change for sure.
0: Mm-hmm. London's a pretty good city to be stuck in. If you're going to be well, it's, stuck somewhere, it's it's a, it's a good place. So.
1: You know, it, it's 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 great. I'm I'm into the routine of walking my kids to school every day and and picking them up many days. And you know, I it's the one thing I would say is now that they're back in school, it's awfully quiet in this house today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you won't be complaining about that soon, probably. Well, I, I don't know. Uh, I'm not. We'll I'm see. not
1: really complaining, Good. but it's it's certainly strange after mm-hmm. six months of everybody being here all the time.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's those are all of my questions, Mike. Did you have anything else to add before we sign off?
1: Um, not really. Thanks very much for having me. Best of luck with with the, uh, the podcast and Thank your you. and your classes at Western. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll look forward to listening.
0: Great. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for your time, and have a great day.
1: Thank you. You too, Suzanne.
0: Okay, take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us. You've been listening to Certified, Canada's Class Actions podcast, hosted and produced by Suzanne Kyoto. Graphic design is by Suzanne Kyoto and Rob Haskins, and the music is by Scott Holmes at freemusicarchive.org website and distribution are courtesy of Simplecast. Be sure to tune in for next week's episode. You can also visit the show's website, certified.simplecast.com, where you can subscribe in iTunes, Google Podcast, and Spotify, or by RSS. You can also find announcements about the show on my Twitter account, Kyoto Accord. Till next time, stay safe and stay classy.